Stay with us following this week's Crosswalk for information on Pastor Clay's new book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. Growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus, this is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. All things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. When you hear the name Jesus, what comes to mind? People often say things like grace, mercy, forgiveness, and love. Well, of course, those words can and should be used in connection with Jesus. But what about words like righteousness, anger, and justice? As we'll hear today, those words fit Jesus as well. You can't live your life any way you want, do anything you want, have no regard for God, but then just magically say, uh, in Jesus' name, I'm believing that this is going to happen for me, and poof, it just appears. I'm Rick Freeman. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. If this is your first time with us, we're in the middle of a series entitled, Jesus, the Real Action Hero. It's a study through the New Testament book of Mark. Today, we come to the account of Jesus cleansing the temple in the last week of his life. As Pastor Clay is going to show us today, when Jesus comes into the temple area, he sees what the people are doing and is not happy about it. His righteous anger called for action, and Jesus took it. He's angry because they have turned the house of God into a marketplace. What should have been a focus on God had become a a focus on, on flesh or on self. He also took the opportunity to teach his disciples some important lessons, lessons that would do all of us good to learn. We're glad you've joined us today. Now here's Pastor Clay. If you knew that you had one week to live, okay, how do you think you would spend that week? Uh, And I know that's probably not something that we really think about, but if you somehow had advanced knowledge that in one week you were going to die, how would you spend that week? I suspect there would be some, some serious thought given to what I would, would do that week. But I, you know, I was thinking about it last night. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't have a bucket list, or at least not down on paper. I may have a few things in my head that I'd like to, that would be great to do before, before I do uh, die. But if you had a bucket list, I don't know, would you try and check as many of those things off as you possibly could in that one week? If, if you had the opportunity to travel, um, you know, would you, would you try and travel some places? One week's not much time. But if you had one week to live, what would you do with that time? I was thinking about that in the context of this passage we've been looking at and and the fact that Jesus, in his divinity, knew that why he had come to Jerusalem. He knew he had come there to die. He makes that very clear. I think I said that last week. He told his disciples on numerous occasions, I'm going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the authorities. I'm going to be falsely accused. I'm going to be put to death. But then I'm going to rise again. He usually added the resurrection into it. But so he knows that it's coming. And so how does he spend that week? Well, fortunately for us, Jesus spends that week giving us uh, really, and I say us because it's not just about those people that were there that day. It's not just about those original disciples. It's one of the beautiful things about being a follower of Jesus Christ. And I realize not everyone here may be a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's something you're thinking about or something you know, you're just not sure about. 
wherever you are in the process, but for those of us who are followers of Christ, we are disciples. The word essentially just means a follower of. Just the same as those uh, men and, and women, you know, had a number of followers, but just the same as they were 2,000 years ago. Now, in some sense, the particulars of our lives are going to be different, of course, but it's an amazing thing to think that what Jesus uh, teaches here in Mark chapter 11, uh, he's in his, I really believe, in his divinity, uh, he is speaking through the ages and he's speaking right to you today. He's speaking to some 10th grader. He's speaking to some senior adult. He's speaking to somebody who, who is struggling in their marriage or hates their job or, you know, whatever else. Ultimately, this always comes back to what we as followers of Jesus are going to do. What the expectations are upon our lives from God, and then and, and what do we do with that? If you brought a copy of God's Word with you, an electronic copy or hard copy or whatever the case may be, you can open it to Mark chapter 11, and uh, we're in verses 11 through 26 today. Hopefully, we're going to get all the way through all of those verses, but uh, uh, we're going to see. I wonder if I'll trip over. That'll be all right. Why? Can I come over here and look at y'all over here a little bit? I thought the, uh, the cameramen were becoming way too complacent the last few weeks with me not moving at all or anything. So uh, Bill's back there today, and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to make him move some. Listen, uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to read the passages as I go. I'm going to break it down into some sections. Uh, and, and going to bring out what I think are so, some important truths each time along the way. The first one I'm going to do is just a brief highlight of last week. Some of you weren't here, and, and even if you were, it never hurts to remind us. Uh, but, it, but in Mark chapter 11, verse 11 uh, through verse 14, I'm reminding you again that this, this is the last week of Jesus' life. And, and the, the book, Mark, goes on through chapter 16, but beginning in chapter 11, he makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and this is the last week of his life. So Mark's covering that extensively in the last several chapters. Beginning in verse 11, y'all with me? All right. Jesus entered Jerusalem, came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season, the regular season, for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. The not going to rehash the whole, what I believe is a, a symbolic look at the nation of Israel there in this fig tree usage, which was, which was an Old Testament uh, comparison to, to the nation of Israel and the fig tree and all that kind of stuff. But, but the, the truth that we brought out of it last week was that God has expectations of fruit. God has, now, he had, he had those expectations for the nation of Israel, and like the fig tree in leaf, it looked healthy from a distance, but there was really no fruit uh, in the life of the nation uh, overall. And then, and then what we did was, we said, 
guess what? For those of us who are followers of Jesus today, it's still the same. There's still the same expectations. The expectations that God had for the nation of Israel are the same expectations that he has for you today if you're here and you profess to be a follower of Jesus. These are expectations. Now, I'm only giving you two of them. We probably could look at numerous others. But there are at least two expectations that God has for your life and and. If you're here, maybe you remember them. But the first one that we said, the first expectation, was that God has an expectation that you will communicate His message. Do you you remember talking about that? That that you'll communicate God's message to the world around you. The nation of Israel failed to do that, quite honestly. But we sure can't beat them up very much, can we? Because we fail to do it a lot of times, too. I don't think I said this last week, but can I just remind you, nobody gets it right all the time. Nobody, you know, uh, you know, Every person in Walmart or at restaurant, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Uh, we, we don't, right? We miss them. We're in a hurry. We're busy. They're busy. They're, they're whatever's happening, going on, and that sort of thing. So we don't always get it right. The great thing about God is he has this expectation on our life, and, and we, we, give, we have this relationship with God that he says, okay, you recognize that perhaps you could have done more, you could have said this, whatever. Let's, let's move on, my child. Let's, how about tomorrow? Is tomorrow you're going to have an opportunity in some way to communicate God's message? doesn't always mean you're going to break a Bible out on them and, you know, walk the Roman road, you know, through the book of Rome. It doesn't necessarily always mean that, but it means that you're, that, that you're going to look for those opportunities, communicate the message. And I said this last, uh, I didn't say this last week. I was going to tell you this story. Some of you have heard it before, but I just want to mention it to you because it, it really is, it was sobering to me. Most of you probably know uh, Penn Gillette, the magician from Penn and Teller. Y- y- y'all know that? And y'all's multiple trips to Vegas. Y'all seen him out there? Oh, sorry, I forgot what happens in Vegas, stays in Vegas. I sorry, forgot about that. But anyway, Penn, uh, Penn Gillette is a, uh, a self-professing atheist. He, he's, he's very intellectual, and he, just, he does not believe in the existence of God. But Penn was commenting one time on... Christians' failure to communicate their message. And this is what he said. This may not be a verbatim quote, but it's pretty close. uh, Because I've read it on numerous occasions. Penn said, if if you really believe that, if you really believe that, uh, that Jesus is the Son of God and that people who believe in Jesus, place their trust in Jesus, will go to heaven, and people that do not believe that will be separated from God and spend eternity in hell. Listen to what he says. If you really believe that, how much must you hate me to not share that message with me? Now think about that a minute. Now like I said, he, he doesn't believe it, but, but he, he understands how irrational it is for us to say we believe it, but never say anything about it. This idea uh, of producing fruit through the communicating of God's word. And the second one is to separate from the world. This, this idea of we have to come be different from the world. Now that, listen, that does not mean that we all have to move into a monastery and, and, and wear brown robes and sing Gregorian chants. Uh, okay, that, that's the opposite of being able to engage. Maybe somehow it's like thinking of it as engaging the world without embracing the world. I don't know if that would be correct or not, but it's just maybe a way to say it. We have to communicate the message, but we have to communicate that message as a person who recognizes that, that the world's standards are probably different from mine th- than what Christ says. You, you understand? Does that make sense? 
Okay, so, so that was the, first there was this expectation of fruit in our lives. And I, I hope that you've given that some thought this week. But let, let's look at the second one uh, this morning. Pick it up in verse uh, 15. I think going 15, I think through 19. It says, then he said to, uh, then, he, then, he, then they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this, and they began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. It is uh, what I'm calling, and I don't really don't. I really have a question whether this is the best way to put it or not. But it just what, what struck me. But it is what I'm calling God's condemnation of the flesh. By the way, I'm really glad that I I didn't get to this passage of scripture last week when I was selling my books in the, the church. That would be. No, there, listen, there is a difference. I, I do think there's a difference. I, I don't think I have time to get into it at, right now because I, I, I don't want to make light of what really is a, a comparison between spiritual and fleshly. Um, a lot of people, a lot of Bible commentators and scholars have pointed out that what, what uh, was going on in the temple uh, actually provided a service for the, the Jews that came into Jerusalem for Passover. Remember I said last week, uh, Passover, tens of thousands of Jews would come from really all over the known world because they had been scattered throughout all the known world. But uh, if at all possible, uh, any good Jew, if at all possible, they were to make their way back to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. It's Jewish holiday, and I explained what that was last week. Well, I... Uh, one of the things that the Jews had to do when they came for Passover was they had to offer up, they had to go up to the temple, they had to offer up a sacrifice. Uh, it was logistically nearly impossible to bring your sacrifice with you. In, in some cases, they traveled hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles. If the sacrifice that they brought became injured or sick, or, or even died, of course, that would render it unfit to be used as a sacrifice. Do you understand? So it, it really was a, a, really a benefit for the people, for the Jews coming into Jerusalem, that they could go and they could find somebody that was selling animal sacrifice and they could purchase the animal sacrifice. It's also true that the Jews, while they were there, had to pay a, a temple tax which then required uh, people to exchange currencies because they were from different countries and would have different currencies and they would, they would have to exchange their currencies. And so the fact that, that this was available to them uh, really was kind of beneficial. And people have pointed out that uh, what was going on was that the people, uh, the merchants, were really kind of ripping all the people off. They, the, the money 
exchangers were charging exorbitant exchange rates. They were using unfair balances on their scales. Um, the, the, the people offering the sacrifices were charging high amounts and that they were ripping the people off. And that that's what just really ticked Jesus off. And I think we can, you know, in the, in the holiest of, of uh, terms, I think we can all establish that Jesus was really ticked off at what's going on. There in the temple. And so was the, everybody says, well, Jesus, is just, he was mad because the, of the injustice that was going on and because they were, they were ripping off the people and they were taking advantage of the, of the situation. And I'm sure that some of that is true. I, I'm sure that there, there, there were unscrupulous merchants who were ripping people off. I'm sure that it did not make Jesus happy that people were uh, taking advantage of other people. Jesus is never happy about injustice, is he? But the text purely in its context, seems to reveal that Jesus is just flat ticked off about the whole idea of buying and selling in general in the temple. It really doesn't say anything about the people that were ripping people off. He's angry because they have turned the house of God into a marketplace. And it really, what should have been a focus on God, had become a, a focus on, on flesh or on self. It had become about, for the merchants, it was about making as much money as they could. For the people buying, it was about, you know, I, I'm sure getting, we got to get the stuff we got to get when we get here, or we certainly want to get the best deal we can get. Everybody's looking for a bargain or, or, or something like that. It, it, there seemed to be, and listen, I do want to say this, I'm sure there were authentic worshipers there in the temple area. I'm sure there were some. But by and large, it appears that the focus seemed to be on anything and everything except the very God for whom the temple had been built in the first place and who had, had given them this Passover gift to begin with. The very God that the focus was supposed to be on seemed to be the one who was left out in the cold. Do you understand what I'm saying? There was a focus on flesh. It's about me, what I've got to do, what I want to do, or money I'm going to make, or the, the thing I've got to pick up, or whatever, instead of where it should have been. And listen, this is not new, this struggle, all right? And, and can anybody, right? We have this struggle at times, but this whole thing about uh, focusing more on self than on, on God, that goes way back, all the way back in, uh, in the book of Genesis uh, Adam and Eve's two oldest sons, Cain and Abel. You've heard of them? Uh, Cain was a farmer of the land. Abel was a tender of sheep. In Genesis chapter 4, listen, we find this, this story. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. And then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well... Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must master it. If you're familiar with the story, Cain didn't master it. He gave into it and murdered his 
own brother. But the point is, God had already instituted a sacrificial system, a sacrificial system that required a blood sacrifice. Not because it met some need in God's existence, not because it somehow, uh, you know, did something that, uh, that, that, that something from the ground couldn't do, except for the fact that the blood sacrifice was intended to point people to the seriousness of sin, Sin is a serious thing with God. You do understand that. I know that we live in a world today where sin is, in some sense, almost non-existent. Uh, That's what people say. Oh, no, they're not not really so bad. Or that's not really... Or the seriousness of sin, and it pointed them to the promise that one day God would send the blood sacrifice, His own Son to be the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He would lay down his life so that our sins could be removed from us. So God instituted the sacrificial system so that people in the Old Testament could understand the seriousness of their sin and and how how it had separated them from God and what God would someday do for them. But you know what? Cain didn't care about that. Cain didn't care about that because he wasn't a tender of sheep. He was a farmer of the ground. And so he wanted to bring what he wanted to bring from the sweat of his brow. It, it may have been a pride thing. It, it, it may have been a, a, a personal thing. Whatever it was, it wasn't a God thing. Because God had said, this is, this is how it would be. And if you do right, Cain, there's not going to be a, a problem. See, it's a focus on self. That's where Cain was. That's where Israel was in the, in the temple and all that's going on. There's, there's no focus on God. Okay. Y'all look like y'all are zoning out. Let me move. (laughs) All right, now listen. We certainly can make application of that for our worship in here today, can't we? What was my attitude as I came in here today in worship? I can tell you this, that oftentimes, if we're not careful, it's on anything and everything except on God. What's happening on Facebook? What time is the Panthers game? What all I got to get done next week? Oh, I, I like that song. I don't like that song. Is it hot in here to anybody? <laughs> right? Do you understand what I'm saying? How easy it is to become distracted by, by things of the flesh instead of focusing on God. So listen, can I just, and I, I just, something real quick. Just give you this if it helps you at all. This, this aspect of worship, when we come in here to worship, uh, start with this. Prepare yourself. All right? Get yourself ready. When you come in here in the morning, before you come in here, when you're still at home, when you're fixing your, your coffee or, or eating your breakfast or, or whatever, just how about just stopping for a minute? You don't got to, you know, light incense and spend an hour. I'm just saying take two or three minutes and, and just say, God, I, I know today I'm getting ready to go into your house and I, and I just want to be ready for that moment. I want to prepare for it and for all that's in front of me. I want to... I wanna, worship you, God. You you understand what I'm saying? If you have a family, maybe you want to gather the whole family around and just take a minute or two and just say, now we're going to worship today. So it's this idea of just preparing yourself. See, just walking in here all willy-nilly and with all the baggage from last week and all that's in front of you next week and your mind being focused on that. You understand what I'm saying? Just an idea. Prepare yourself. Second, I I would say this. Discipline yourself. Get rid of distractions. Okay, I know a lot of you uh, tweet 
stuff that somebody, whoever's speaking on the platform, something they say sometimes, and a little phrase or something, some of you tweet that out, or maybe even place it on Facebook. I think that's great. But if, you, if, if, you have, if your smartphone is distracting you, if your iPad is distracting you, whatever the distractions are, if your mind is consumed with next week, you've got you to gotta get rid of those distractions. Okay, and then third, I would say this, uh, focus yourself. Get God where he belongs, all right? To say, God, you are the priority here. Not, not what songs are going to be sung or not uh, what I have to do next week or, God, I'm coming in to worship you. So would you help me to, to focus on you and to place you where you belong in, in this whole idea of worship and and in my act of worship today. Okay? So we can make application about worship. I think we can. I think that's fine. Because I think the people in the, the temple had gotten distracted, and I think it can happen to us as well. But I think we can take it farther than that. Because, because it's not, it wouldn't be exactly correct to say that the, the church gathered in here on Sunday morning is the equivalent of the Old Testament temple. It's not. Matter of fact, if you're here and you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the Bible says that you are the temple of God. Look at this uh, passage in, uh, uh, I think it's 1 uh, Corinthians 3. And, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, you guys are acting like a bunch of babies, basically what he's saying. Uh, as to infants in Christ... I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you're not yet able to receive it. I can't even give you the really solid meat. He said, and even, indeed, even now you're still not yet able, for you're still fleshly. Still this focus on, on self. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? Do you understand if you're here today and you're in Christ Jesus, you are no mere man. You are no mere woman. You are a child of the living God. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, well, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So this idea of... If you are the temple of God, then folks, it has something to do with, it's not just about when you come in here on Sunday morning. That's what I'm saying to you, you understand? It's not about when you just come in here on Sunday morning. That the focus of your life should be not fleshly, but spiritual all of the time. I'll never forget this, uh, this guy. This was uh, uh, at a previous uh, church where I served. I was talking with a man one day out in the community, and I invited him to church. And I said, man, we, we'd love to have you, and we're just, we just love on folks, and we, we, we worship the Lord, try and teach God's truth, and we, we would just love to have you come and, and, and visit with us. And the man says to me, he says, uh, doesn't, doesn't so-and-so go to your church? And I said, well, y- yes, he does. And I thought, well, this is great. Is somebody already there that he knows, and there'll be a connection and all that kind of stuff. And I said, well, yes, yes, he does. He does go to our church. Do you know him? And he says, yeah, I know him. He says, doesn't he serve as a deacon in your church? And I said, well, yes, he does. He serves as a, as a deacon there. And this is what the man said. He said, I work with that man. I've seen how he acts when he is not at church. I will never 
attend a church where that man attends. Now, you know, that, that guy's got his own baggage. He's responsible for his own stuff with God and all that kind of stuff. But I'm just saying it's this idea that the focus is on the spiritual and, and not on the fleshly all the time. Not just part of the time, not just sometimes, not just when we come in these doors and we're going to lift our hands and, and, uh, and, you know, sing our praises, but that all the time, when I walk out of these doors, when I go to the restaurant today and the way I treat the waitress, when I go to work Monday morning and the way I treat my fellow uh, employees or employers or whatever the case may be, that there's this focus on the spiritual, focus on God and not on myself. That's exactly right. Life is a mission trip. That, somebody said that, and I just thought that was really profound. <laughs> All right, here we go. In the second one, or actually it's the third one. Woo, can't get over there. Come here. All right, let's, let's get to the, to the third truth that Jesus uh, teaches us today. And go ahead and bring, the, bring it up, uh, Tyler. Thank you. Cool. Um, it's what I'm calling God's exhortation of faith. So we've got an expectation of fruit. In our lives, he's got a condemnation of flesh that when we put the focus on us, we've gotten off track. And then there is this exhortation of faith. What, what's this amazing passage of scripture in verse 20 through 24? And we'll try and get through it as quickly as we can. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying uh, to them, have faith in God. And truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. Wow. This is... um, one of the most amazing, and in some sense, at least for me, I might say perplexing passages of Scripture on prayer and faith in the entire Bible. Uh, Peter sees the tree wither, right? He says, hey, Rabbi, that tree that you cursed, that thing is dead. <laughs> By the way, if you have to be sitting there thinking... Well, I, I, I don't think that was nice of Jesus to curse that fig tree. I, I don't, that just doesn't seem like a, a, a kind or good thing to do. All right, I, listen, I, I, don't want to chase, I don't want to chase this too far down the rabbit hole because we just don't have time. But I do want to say this to you this morning. You, you have got to get used to the idea that you are the most precious thing to God in all of his creation. You have to get used to the idea that you are precious to God because you are created in the image of God. No other part of God's creation is created in His image. It's not that fig trees weren't important, but fig trees aren't created in the image of God. And part of what it means to be created in the image of God means that you are an eternal creature. And quite honestly, as long as the sin curse is on this world, fig trees will come and go. But every single human being ever born has an eternal soul for which God cares for. Anyway, that was, uh, anyway, Peter says, hey, Rabbi, that fig tree is, is dead. Now, I don't know what kind of response or what Peter was expecting from this, but I, I'm guessing he probably wasn't expecting a faith lesson from it. But 
but that's what he got. And, and remember, Jesus is about to leave them. He's about to be murdered. He's about to be put in the ground. And they're going to be expected to go and carry the message of Jesus and birth the church. and all. They're going to need a lot of faith. They're, they're, they're going to need it for what's in front of them. And, and so we find this in verse 24 where he says, Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray, ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. But it starts, Jesus starts this whole thing with this exhortation, believe in or have faith in, what does he say? God. Have faith in God. All of it begins and ends with this faith in God. Now our faith will, will grow, right? As, as we encounter life situations that give us the opportunity to to uh, implement our faith and practice our faith. Our faith may grow, but it begins and ends with this, with this idea that, that faith is in God and what God can and will do in every situation. And then, he, as I said, he follows it up with this uh, amazing, uh, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted you. Now, let me say this. This text has probably been abused as much as it's been used. It is the proof, one of the proof texts, at least for those that hold to what you guys have heard me sometimes refer to as the health, wealth, and prosperity movement. It's sometimes uh, sarcastically referred to as the, the name it and claim it group, the grab it and blab it group. There's different kinds of names that are sometimes, or blab it and grab it, different kinds of names that are sometimes. It is the belief that based on what Jesus says here, I can ask Jesus for anything and as long as I believe, as long as I do not let my faith falter, as long as I believe strongly enough, whatever I ask him for, it will come to me. Anything from a, a medical miracle to a Mercedes in the driveway, if I believe it strongly enough and ask Jesus for it without wavering, to what Jesus says here in the text, it will be granted to me. Now, <clears throat> Let me just say, when you're building a theology of faith and prayer and all that kind of stuff, you have to take all the text in all of its entirety to build a proper theology. Okay? I'm not diminishing this text. We'll come back to it. But, but there is an understanding that, that as you build a proper theology, you, you come to the conclusion that there are a couple of conditions for our answered prayer when we're asking for something in faith. There are a couple of conditions. Uh, the first one uh, is, is this. First condition is, is the will of God. What we're asking has to align with the will of God. It's, it's, the, it's the same thing, by the way. It's the same thing that, that you do when your four-year-old asks you if they can skip dinner and just eat Snickers bars tonight. No. Well, why not? I mean, I, that, that would be, it'll taste good, but it doesn't line up with your will. Right? Because your will, you know what is best for them. So it has to line up with the will of God. Let me give you, uh, let me give you an example. Let me just read the verse. We'll get right to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, Apostle Paul is, has, and people speculated what all it was, but Paul had some type of physical infirmity. He had what he refers to as a thorn in his flesh. He says, concerning this, I implored the Lord 
three times that it might leave me. So, so I pray, man, I'm praying for God to take this off me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, Paul says, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Paul could have named and claimed his healing all day long. But God had purposes in the infirmity. God had purposes in the adversity. God had purposes in the trial. And so God said, say it, no. No, Paul, I won't take this off of you. So understand that what we're looking for here is the will of God when we're asking for those mountains uh, to move. Uh, Second, not, not only the will of God, but also the conduct of me. Of you, right? You can't, you can't live your life any way you want, do anything you want, have no regard for God, uh, but then just magically say, uh, in Jesus' name, I'm believing that this is going to happen for me, and poof, it just appears. It, it, it just doesn't work that way. Let me give you an example. Guys, guys, <laughs> the example, I mean, all of us can... Can see that the conduct of me matters, but let me give it to you in First uh, Peter uh, chapter three. You find this: husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner, and their and as heirs with you. Notice the quality as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Watch this, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, Paul's not insulting women, by the way. He's simply stating the obvious. God created men and women differently, and physically speaking, uh, women are, are physically weaker than men, as, as, a, you know, as a general rule. He's not, you understand? But the point is, Paul says, you, you, you're taking advantage of the fact because you think you can dominate them or something like that. You treat them any way that you want, but then you're going to pray to God like he's going to hear that? No. No, your conduct has, has, has some part in this. You and I have to think about how am I, how am I living my life? How am I acting? Okay, so there, there are a couple of conditions in there, but let me just say this real quickly, because uh, I know we're getting real close to the end. Uh, let me just say uh, that while there are conditions, I, I hope that I have not diminished the impact of what Jesus has said here, uh, because, uh, because the truth of his word is still the truth of his word. And, and I don't know what your mountain is, Okay? In those days, mountain was the ultimate object that kept them from getting somewhere. I don't. You, in your life, you can have mountains. In your life, you can have a, a relational mountain or a financial mountain or a health mountain. In fact, you may feel like you have a whole mountain range in your life. But what I'm saying to you is, and I think what Jesus is saying is. That, that if you will hold on to that, what he said in the first place, have faith in God, that no matter what happens, no matter where your circumstances are, no matter what it looks like to you, that you're going to hold on to this idea that God is God and God is on his throne, I can promise you God will move that mountain in a way that, that keeps you moving forward in your relationship with him and that brings him honor and glory. It's absolutely a truth that, that if we will believe... God can move those mountains in your life. It's this, this 
call for faith and to live our lives in that way. Okay, real, real quick, just in closing, I do want to give you the, the last one today. So much more to say about that, but I just don't ha- have the time. Uh, last idea today, and then we'll look at it in the text, is God's clarification of forgiveness. I said a moment ago that there are some conditions sometimes. This would be one of them, again, that, that we find. Let me read verse 25 and 26. Uh, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, uh, that's, that's got to be a typo. Let me see. If you have anything against anyone, man, that's what it said the second time, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. It's, it's just here. And there's no way around it in the text. And the implication is clear. That you cannot claim that you have the love of God within you while at the same time holding on to hatred for your fellow man for whatever the reasons might be. And I'm not making light of what some of those reasons are. I think I've told this story before. There was a lady that uh, Cindy and I knew years ago in, in another church that uh, had, it's a long story, but she had become angry with because of a decision the church had made, and she felt that it was an unfair decision, and, um, and she, she worked for the church. She was a, a secretary for the church, and she just became very angry. And do y'all know this? Do y'all know if you hold on to anger long enough, do you know what it turns into? That's right, bitterness. It turns into bitterness in your life because you just stew and chew on this. You're so mad. You're so angry. You're so upset at what was done and the way the decision they made or how they treated you or, or whatever else. And, and people kept telling her, you've you got to let it go. You've got to forgive. You've got to. But, but she just, she just refused. I will not do it. I, 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 just, I just won't. It's, it's a long story. It's a, it's a long, sad story. Uh, I can tell you this. In the end, she lost her husband. Her husband simply couldn't couldn't live with her anymore. Uh, she eventually became ill and, and, and died, I, I believe in some sense, really, of just the bitterness that had, that had eaten her alive. That, as much as anything else, is a reason that you and I have to learn to let go of hurts. In, in the book of Ephesians, uh, there's this passage of Scripture, Paul, that really is a good reminder because it, it says this, in Ephesians chapter 4, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Of course, Paul puts that caveat on the end, reminding us, remember what God has forgiven you of. So this idea of being tender-hearted, that's the opposite of, of bitterness and anger and whatever. Can I tell you, in, in the course, uh, now some of us may only see each other on Sunday, but some of you interact together, your family or, or co-workers, or, or you have a, it is so easy for us to, to hurt one another isn't it so easy for us to offend one another or to say something that we may mean totally innocent but but because of our background we take it to mean something else and why did they say that the way they did whatever the case may be right isn't it so easy you have to keep your heart tender and the best way to do that that I know of is to say God man you have forgiven me of so much and excuse me if I don't list them all right now God but you have forgiven me of so much Lord how can I not forgive others what they've done to me. I just, I just want to close with this this morning. I want everybody within the sound of the voice of this message, and, and I know I'm rushing through this, but, but you get the gist of what Jesus is saying. I want everybody that hears this message, I want you to think right now about somebody 
and you don't, have, you don't have to close your eyes or anything necessarily, but I want you to think of somebody that has hurt you. It may have been a recent hurt. It may have been a hurt a long time ago, but it hurt, and it hurt bad. I want you to think about whether you have authentically, because you still remember it, you may still remember it, but I want you to think about, have I ever forgiven that person for the hurt that they caused me? And if you sometimes wonder, well, I don't, I don't know, how do I, how do I know if I've really forgiven them? You think about it enough, you'll know. If you think about it more than once a day, but to think about, have I ever really let that go? Because can I say this to you, and, and then we'll close, but I just want to remind you of this. Extending forgiveness, in other words, by you simply saying, that person did this to me, it hurt me, it left scars in my life, but I am choosing to forgive them. When you do that, just be reminded, you're not letting that person off the hook. You're simply recognizing that they are on God's hook, that they are responsible to God, ultimately, for their actions and for their conduct, and that you're able to let go of it and move on with your life in the way that God wants you to proceed with your life without being consumed with that person and what they did to you. Because listen, newsflash, they've moved on with their life. You better believe they're not thinking about it every other day. But in a sense, they're holding you captive still to that thing that they did to you a year ago, five years ago, 20 years ago. Jesus says the best thing for you to do is to forgive. It's easy to see that many of the Jews had become focused on themselves instead of God. If we're honest, we know the same thing can happen to us if we're not careful. The pull of the flesh and the trappings of the world can lure us away from a priority on God and His kingdom. In addition, Jesus taught His disciples the importance of faith in our lives. God wants to demonstrate His power in our lives. As Pastor Clay explained, it doesn't mean that we can just ask God for anything we want and He'll grant it. There are conditions to answered prayer, and part of the condition is forgiving others. We're glad you joined us for this week's Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. Many people at some point in their lives feel disconnected with the type of life and faith that they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting? If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback form from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I Get It from Slay Stevens? They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy of I Get It today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it. And join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. 
God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of Cross Culture Worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. Our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where you'll find what you're looking for. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.